This is the Ask a Vet podcast series from Solar Power World. Welcome to another edition of Ask a Vet. I'm Kathy Zip, Senior Editor of Solar Power World. This month's veteran is the godfather of solar engineering, Bill Brooks, Principal at Brooks Engineering. As an early adopter of solar engineering, Bill has spent over 25 years designing, installing, and evaluating grid-connected PV systems. So you might have taken a course from him, you might have read one of his technical manuals, or met him at a solar show. He's an NEC expert, actively involved in developing many of the important codes and standards that govern our industry. And according to his peers, he's also a great guy. In a recommendation on LinkedIn, one of his colleagues wrote, Brooks Engineering is the premier consulting place if you need someone who knows his stuff. Straight up honest guy. I said I'd give Bill a kidney if he ever needed one and the offer still stands. (laughs) So obviously people think really highly of him and I'm really excited to be talking to you, Bill. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I like to kind of start off just how people maybe began with their days in school and kind of got into their careers because everybody's path into solar usually is not a straight one. So I saw that you do hold bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from North Carolina State University. So what drew you to engineering in the first place? Good question. My dad was an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and so uh, he actually encouraged me to get into electrical engineering, and uh, I was rebellious and chose the same path he chose. <laughs> but grew up in the energy crisis years of the 70s, cut wood to heat the house with my dad and things like that, and solar was uh, became popular in the late 70s before I went into college in the 80s, and those things were already prominent in my mind anyway. I went into engineering school. Over the course of engineering school, I ended up deciding to go for a master's degree. And really, when I went for my master's degree, I had taken a class in solar engineering in my senior year of undergrad and liked the teachers, liked the basic course area. And so that's kind of what took me in that direction for my master's degree. And then uh, once I started my master's degree is really kind of when I discovered photovoltaics, and that was the, you know, pretty much the defining moment. It must have been super interesting to kind of see solar in the 70s when it was mainly off-grid type installations, right? Yeah. In fact, back then, um, photovoltaics was really kind of an unknown. I think I saw it for my for the first time ever at Disney's Expo Center. They had it on one of their facilities, and that was kind of crazy and didn't make any sense to me at the time. Back then, everything was passive solar and solar hot water and things like that. And so, you know, PV really was relegated to a pretty small number of folks that even knew about it. That's pretty cool. So I saw that at one point you actually worked at the North Carolina Solar Center. So I remember when I started writing for Solar Power World, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about the industry, and I was kind of just looking for resources, and I found that one pretty easily, not knowing for a while what a big deal it really was. And so I was just wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about the center, like why it was started in North Carolina, and then the work that you did there. Sure. The solar center started in um, 1988, and uh, that's kind of the beginning of what I'd call my solar career. I I was one of the founding staff, one of the three founding staff of that organization, and uh, we built it from, you know, basically scratch. 
Larry Shirley was the director at the time and uh, was there for quite a few years and really got it moving forward. And in the early days is when it was kind of my directive to take it in the direction of photovoltaics. And so I installed a, a photovoltaic system on their solar demonstration house and things like that. So, and it was an interesting time because we had just come off of the solar thermal tax credits that had uh, been sunsetted. Solar really did not have a very good name in the late 1980s. In fact, most people were getting away from the the term solar and and going toward the word renewables and things like that just because people were scared of the term. It was kind of uh, brazen of us to call it the North Carolina Solar Center. And it was funded through... Uh, oil overcharge money from the the 70s. This is part of a settlement that goes way back into the 70s where uh, states were given money because of oil companies overcharging for their fuel and different grants were given and this was one of the things that was proposed to the state of North Carolina and they funded it at the university and part of a university extension so a lot of uh, materials were developed there, training materials, information, put in fact sheet form and in digital form to send out to people. And the facility itself was a kind of a tour facility for uh, people that wanted to see the stuff in operation and all. And that was in the late 1980s. I was there for 10 years before moving to California. That's so interesting. Thank you for that information. I've always been kind of curious about the full story of that. Mm -hmm. So you also teach, and I actually read that you've taught more than 12,000 installers and inspectors that's in the U.S. and abroad, so that is incredible. Tell me a little bit about the teaching work that you do. Training and teaching is part of the job as far as, as a pioneer. It's not enough to know how to do something if you want to make it uh, broadly acceptable or you're trying to under, help people understand the right way to do things. You know, that goes back to the solar center in North Carolina. It was definitely a facility that was primarily an educational facility. When I moved to California, I was actually working for a small consulting firm that had a uh, contract with the California Energy Commission to do training of inspectors and contractors in PV. And this was in the beginning of the solar rebate program in California that started in March of of 1998. I did come here primarily to do teaching. That was kind of my initial role, although I've kind of moved on to a lot of other things. And back then, there was really nobody doing teaching. Um, And so at that time, other than some folks at the Florida Solar Energy Center, when we're talking about grid-connected PV, there was no training going on almost anywhere in the United States. And so this was an opportunity to kind of set the ground level of what really needed to be taught and making sure that the stepping stones were in place for like the methods of how to install and rooftops and things like that, which basically we used a lot of materials that did come out of Florida and and culled them down to what we thought were the kind of the critical items, and they became the way that we install PV, which were things like lag screw mounting into rafters and things like that, which all came out of methods that have been developed over the last couple of decades. And then once things started taking off in the 2002-2003 range, everybody started teaching. And so at that point, 
uh, you know, I kind of backed off and, and uh, went on to do other types of consulting work. So teaching now is maybe 10% of my time, whereas back then it was maybe 80% of my time. You were providing entry-level training because there weren't really many other options or places to go for solar training. But if I understand correctly now, I read that you do more, since there are places people can go for entry-level education now, you, you kind of focus more on the higher level of, of engineering and not for entry-level people. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, you can go to quite a few good resources out there to get entry-level classes. And my goal in spending my time is to focus on things where there isn't something going on. And higher-level trainings are, are something that I, I definitely do. And, of course, code, le- code, National Electrical Code trainings, I do a lot of work with just because that's one of my main fortes. So being heavily involved in the, the code-making process I want to make sure people understand why the code says what it does since I was helpful and involved in actually writing it. Right. Definitely want to um, ask about that next. But before that, is that something we need more in solar, more higher level proficient solar installers and contractors, maybe higher level of engineering understanding, at least within the company? Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, one of the frustrations is that the vast majority of folks that work in the field, as far as installing the equipment and and a lot of them that work on the equipment, their level of understanding is fairly shallow. And therefore, when they get themselves into a predicament and a difficulty or, or in a tough situation as far as what's going on in the field, they don't have the tools in their toolbox to essentially help them out of the situation. And so a lot of times I get called in on things where the solution is maybe simpler than than needed my attention to it, but the folks in the field just didn't have the horsepower to pull it off. And, you know, obviously there's always a need to improve and and learn more. Part of that is education through articles, you know, so that's why I write for periodicals, International Association of Electrical Inspectors and, and mm-hmm. things like that, so that if you see people getting things wrong fairly often or misunderstanding things, that you then can, in a fairly short and poignant way, get something in on paper and then get it out there and then the internet kind of does the rest at that point because now it's something that people can find when they run into trouble on something and hopefully be able to help them out of it. You actually kind of answered my next question because as you said, you know, you have done a lot of technical manuals for the industry. I can't imagine that's light work. I'm sure that requires a lot of patience and research and you're in many working groups, you're um, a national electrical code expert. So you've been part of some of the development of key industry codes and standards. And I'm sure that's not easy either to try to get everyone to agree and move forward with something. So, but that's important work. And so is that what kind of drives you? Yeah, I mean, as a pioneer, and certainly I consider myself a pioneer or maybe an ambassador is another term for the technology. In the early days, uh, when I started in the late 80s, we were fighting utility companies pretty pretty routinely and uh, you know learned ways of working with utility companies also learned ways of of making the case for solar first 10 years of my career was really sp- focused on interconnection requirements and, and standards related to interconnection because 
the electrical code really didn't matter at that point because um, if you couldn't interconnect the equipment, nobody really cared about how you would install it. True. Um, so the interconnection part was a huge deal, and, and that was about being an ambassador because you were working with uh, folks that were being directed by their management to squash it. That's a reality, and, and that goes on to this day. The, the perception in engineering world and in the utility world was that solar was a bunch of hippies that smoked pot and hung out in the, in the country. And uh, although there are plenty of those folks out there, uh-huh. and, and some of them are great folks, that was not the thing that was going to win the day with those kind of folks. There were quite a few folks, that colleagues of mine, engineers, that uh, were top of their field that basically stepped up and showed that entire industry that, that you didn't have to be a hippie to support solar and that's a valid technology. And, you know, so that was a huge part of the early days was just getting over that hump and technically addressing things head on so that it wasn't uh, relegated to uh, what was a common tactic uh, in the utility industry is that, you know, they throw up different issues and problems and, oh, what about this? What about this? And you basically had to kind of one by one knock them down and then show you know, alternatively, the the technical aspects of it. And that definitely took a lot of years, uh, took a lot of patience, a lot of struggle. And it did kind of solidify a lot of the folks that worked in those early years and who were pioneers. And you had to have a long, long vision into the future where this stuff was going. Because, you know, when I started in the late 80s, we were thinking about the day when when there might be a million installations and all that kind of stuff. And and quite frankly, none of us ever believed that it would happen, but we all knew what it would take to get there as far as uh, what had to be in place in order for something like that to happen, and that was to have easy interconnection. It had to be simple and straightforward, not complicated, not require engineering studies every time you wanted to interconnect a 5-kilowatt PV system, and it also had to have uh, really straightforward codes and standards, and it had to have product standards to to back it all up. So you had to have product safety standards for the modules and inverters and everything like that so that essentially you were buying things off the shelf and not buying things in onesie twosies. And so all those things were pieces of the puzzle that a lot of the original uh, pioneers that worked on this stuff could see really clearly had to happen. And those things took years to put in place. And so it was like nobody expected it to happen Even in 20 years, it was kind of like, okay, we're in this for our careers, and maybe by the end of our careers, we might start to see the stuff really kind of kicking in. But here we go, and this is how we get there. So interesting how that all kind of evolved and why those rules and and codes are so important. Is there a code or standard development that you're working on right now or that you see has to kind of happen next for the industry to succeed? Yeah, I think there's always new things that we're working on. Even the National Electrical Code, we're we're doing some pretty groundbreaking things for the 2020 code cycle. And one of those things is something right now that we're calling power control systems. This is where a typical house, certainly it could be as small as a house system or it could be a commercial building, would have essentially an energy management system that would control how much power is delivered from the utility, how much power is delivered to the utility, how much power goes into storage, 
what loads could be run, things like that. And this is really a pretty key part of, of taking solar to the next level. As the industry really, and PV becomes a higher and higher percentage of the utility system, then the utility system and the system on somebody's home has to become far more intelligent and capable in operating. Utilities are asking for it, but it's also a value to the customer. And so some of the standards that are being worked on right now are actually these control schemes that would become a certified product that would be able to manage you know, the use of your electric vehicle, of different loads in your house, as well as one of the big things is going to be preventing the customers from having to upgrade their utility service just because they want to put in an electric vehicle charger and things like that. And so the way it stands right now, if you were to have a smaller electrical service on your house, like a 100-amp service, the utility would almost always require you to install a larger 200-amp service in order to have an electric vehicle charger, unless there was something that could make sure that that service was never overdrawn. So people are going to be saving a fair amount of money by, you know, it could cost an, an additional ten to $15,000 to, to increase your service size for a house just to install an uh, electric vehicle charger. If you could put that same money into battery storage and smart controls and things like that, you're not only going to save that money, but you're going to be able to use the stuff a lot more and possibly be able to install larger PV systems, which is another big thing. You wouldn't be as limited on the size of the PV system and things like that. So, so I think that's part of what I see, you know, kind of looking down the road 10 years, that's where we have to be. And the development of the standards happening right now, it's just, just getting going. The codes are starting to talk about it. And five to 10 years down the road, this will become a common thing. Very exciting and obviously grateful to everyone working on those codes and standards. So I actually thought some questions from our readers on social media, and a lot of them actually revolved around safety. If you could tell us, how can solar installers reduce or manage costs on a job while staying safe? And then are there any additional considerations as the industry is moving towards 1500 volts? couple different ways you could take that scenario. One is safety for the installer for uh, actually what they do. Obviously, the standards that are related to product standards and the codes are focused on safety, trying to make things safer and, and improve safety. And certainly over the years, the requirements in solar have become more stringent, more difficult for a lot of reasons. Systems today are far safer than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 1,500 volts is just another example of something that as you push the voltage higher and higher, you're essentially, your probabilities of, of failures or hurting somebody goes up, which means that, you know, there's different things that have to be in place in order to protect folks. And so 1,500 volts right now is, is relegated to essentially ground-mounted systems, so you won't see that on rooftops uh, anytime soon that I know of. That's, that's one way to do it, but uh, also the equipment, ground fault detection, arc fault detection equipment, those standards are having to be revised and improved in order to handle these higher voltages. And, and then procedures, too. I, I think that a lot of folks that might have worked in 48-volt systems back 15, 18 years ago, which was the common voltage, 
you couldn't do the same things with 600 volt systems. You can't do the same things with 1,000 volt or 1,500 volt systems. And so, you know, you really have to get from an installation point of view far more particular in your procedures so that there's there's no chance in people getting shocked and things like that. It also, things like common problems in the field are, are cable management. If you have a failure of a cabling system at 1,500 volts, that's certainly going to be more likely to energize something than a 600-volt system would, you know, just because of the higher potential on the system the circuit. So, so you know, definitely safeties are, are part of the deal. And, and one of the things that I've certainly seen as a need for the industry over the last 10 to 15 years is that moving from what I call wild PV which is essentially we hook wires up to semiconductors and we let it rip um, <laughs> and, and getting to something that's far more controlled. And so we're getting into much more controlled circuitry, controlling the circuits coming out of the module itself with DC converters, possibly microinverters, different methods, even switching hardware. And these are things that are difficult from a standards point of view, difficult from a a technical point of view in order to uh, pull off reliably and effectively. DC converters, when they first started coming out, when I first talked to some of the folks at SolarEdge 15 years ago, I thought they were out of their minds. So, uh, <laughs> But now, that's a technology that I firmly believe will have a major impact on the entire uh, rooftop market, both in residential and commercial, it already is, and uh, and will continue to take over the world in that area. And it's the kind of things that we need from a control point of view because this idea of having a thousand volts just kind of flowing around on a on a commercial rooftop or six hundred volts flowing around on a residential rooftop, although you know we certainly loved it as PV people. It has some real issues and concerns for folks like the fire service and quite frankly, for, for people that are not in the solar trade. So you have a large commercial rooftop and you got somebody who's up there working on HVAC equipment or maybe even they're tasked to, to wash the solar panels and you're asking them to get in close proximity, maybe even touch them, and they're not electrical people. You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to get them shocked. So these technologies can, can go a long way to allow people to approach the equipment because we like to have it close by where we can see it, but uh, we don't want to hurt people at the same time. Right, definitely. Don't want anybody to get hurt. All right, well, my last question, Bill, is an easy one. What else do you do when you're not working on solar? (laughs) That's a really good question. I ask myself that sometimes. Um, (laughs) uh, I do have too many other hobbies. I work on cars. That's part of the mechanical engineering side of me. Right. I even have a two-post lift in my garage to work on cars, and my next project is rebuilding my uh, turbo diesel Passat. Just finished uh, building in-ground pool with a large waterfall in my backyard. That was a crazy project that I took on. Oh, wow. And I I fly a little bit. I have drones. I I had airplanes. Uh, I haven't flown airplanes in a while, but I fly drones. And a little bit of everything, but I'm a car nut, and so I, I like to work on performance cars and play around with my old 1982 Porsche 928. 
definitely a busy guy, and uh, I look forward to when you have a industry party over your house so we can all see that pool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, thank you so much, Bill. It's been really awesome talking to you. It's such an interesting career you've had, and I uh, really appreciate you sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. This has been another edition of Ask a Bet. Join us each month as ISPW editor Kathy Zip, bringing you the unique perspectives and insights of those who have spent a decade or more in solar. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Join us online for more podcasts, videos, and great editorial content at solarpowerworldonline.com. And don't forget to share your thoughts on social media. Catch you next month.